All right. Thank you guys for being willing to talk. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Hope you're able to maybe connect or be connected with. Um, let me ask a question really quickly. Um, the question is this. What's your favorite relatively mundane new thing to get? So what's your, you know, relatively mundane, like nothing, not like a car necessarily, but what's one of those things that when you get it and it's new, you just like are embarrassed you're so excited about it, right? I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about getting ready for school and they said, oh, I love it when I get to go out and buy pencils and pens and notebooks and folders. And this, whoever, this person I was talking to, they were, you could just see it in their eyes, their eyes lit up. It was really cute. You know, for me as a kid, it was probably, or really through college, it was probably getting a brand new pair of soccer shoes. I love opening the box, smelling the smell. If I could put a sleeping bag in the box and sleep in there, I would do that. I love the smell of new shoes. And, uh, and then, you know, just, you know, uh, anyway, I could go on and on. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> today we're going to be talking in a moment uh, really about Acts chapter 9. This is uh, the story of Saul's conversion, Paul's conversion. And uh, so we'll jump into that in a moment. But before we do, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for inviting us into this place. Um, you know where we are, <clears throat> whether we're uh, worried or anxious or depressed or we feel alone. Maybe we feel angry. Um, maybe we are excited to be here this morning, Father, but <clears throat> none of those emotions are enough um, to drive you away. In fact, I think you make it clear in your word that you invite us to bring our entire selves to you. And so I pray that we would do that this morning, Father, believing and remembering that you're a good father, that you love us, that you're big enough and strong enough to hand handle us in all of our um, uh, craziness and brokenness, <clears throat> and that ultimately, um, not only are you enough to handle um, all of us, but that you um, gave your son Jesus in order um, to make us right, to make us whole, and to bring us back into a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray these things today in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to read a little section of an article that I ran across this last week. Uh, it's by a woman named Mary Poplin, um, who is currently a professor of education at Claremont University. She got her PhD at the University of Texas. But the reason that, uh, that I ran across this article and that I thought it was compelling and interesting is because it's called The Unlikely Conversion of a Radical Scholar. The Unlikely Conversion of a Radical Scholar. And she's actually talking about herself. So I'm going to read um, probably what is uh, a little bit of a lengthy section of her article. But if you can stick with me and focus, I think you'll find that it's worth it. She says this, Once I got to college, the world opened up to me and I enjoyed walking through those doors where the enticements were strange and sometimes even dangerous. I craved engaging in them. The world, of course, rewarded me for every step into increasingly dangerous places. When I tried new things, I was considered more sophisticated, more intelligent, more fashionable, and even more spiritual. When I eventually left my hometown to study at graduate school, I shed the last vestiges of being under any kind of authority whatsoever. I had already been taught in undergraduate education that authority was inherently oppressive, the church, the state, the family. Here, in graduate school, the possibilities in my newfound community of students were endless. Late-night intellectual discussions, feminist consciousness, raising groups, alcohol, drugs, sex, etc., etc., the list went on and on. By the time I was 41, I was a fully tenured professor at an elite private college where I had been since 1981. By then, I'd been involved in transcendental, transcendental meditation, Zen meditation, and feminist theology. 
I helped to lead our local democratic club and frequented gay and lesbian nightclubs with a friend. I was teaching radical feminism, critical theory, postmodernism, and running a very successful teacher education program. My students were required to read postmodernists, Marxist, and even self-proclaimed witches. I thought of myself as smart, open-minded, happy, humble, and light, or enlightened. In actuality, I was foolish, close-minded, confused, depressed, anxious, arrogant, and filled with darkness. I would have told you, she says, that I was spiritual and yet not religious. And what that would have meant is that I thought I was better than you because I didn't need religion or any set of rules to be good. To people like me, spiritual always meant good, but there was no recognition that evil is also spiritual. And then, in November of 1992, I had a dream. Though there's little about dreams in our epistemology and apologetics, dreams and visions play a significant role in the Bible. And because I was so dark, I believe the dream may have been the only way that God could reach me. Among other things, this dream revealed the condition of my soul. She goes on to talk about the content of her dream. She says this, In my dream, I'm in a long line of people dressed in gray robes and looking very depressed. We're suspended in a dark night sky, and we're moving very slowly forward, and no one's stepping out of line, turning to one another or speaking. We're single file, silent, and except for stepping slowly forward, the people are hardly moving, zombie-like. I'm curious to see the extent of the line, so I break out of line a bit by leaning to my left to see where the line begins, and I see that it only snakes around and disappears. And then I lean to my right, and I look behind me to see the end. The line is endless in both directions. As we move forward, I began to notice that we're about to pass by something on our right. There's light coming from it, and the scene is in color, even though those of us in the line are not. As I approach, I see that it's the scene of the Lord of the Last Supper from Leonardo da Vinci, but it's live, and the disciples are eating together, but Jesus isn't at the table with them. He's standing ahead of me and greeting each of us in the line. When I get up to him and he looks at me, I suddenly have an awareness of every cell in my body, and that every cell in my body is filled with filth. I can no longer look at him, and I fall at his feet, and I begin to weep. In the dream, Jesus reaches over and grabs my shoulders with his hands, and I feel what can only be the peace that surpasses understanding. Fast forward a couple of days, and she realizes that this experience is beginning to change her. It's shaking her internally. It's really changing her whole world. She says, when I woke up from the dream, I realized I was crying, and not knowing what to do, I reached out to a Native American friend of mine, assuming that those are the people who know what to do with dreams. We went to dinner, and she says, at dinner, after I told him the dream, he asked me why I thought I needed to do something about my spiritual life now, and out of my mouth came something I didn't know that I knew. I said, because I have something black in my chest, and I don't know how to get rid of it. Something black in my chest. I don't know how to get rid of it. As we got ready to get into our respective cars, he said very casually, since it had been Jesus in my dream, I might want to start reading the New Testament. Pretty good advice. I began reading, and just after Christmas, I traveled to Texas to pick up my mother and take her to her childhood home to see if she might want to live with a cousin now that my father had passed away. 
We arrived on Saturday night, and Mom wanted to go to church the next morning to see her friends. We sat near the back of the church, and at the conclusion of the sermon, the pastor said that we were going to have communion. He spelled out the invitation. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive communion. In fact, you don't have to be a member of any church at all to receive communion, but you do have to believe that Jesus lived and that he died for your sins and that you want to have him in your life. And when the pastor said this, I was strongly drawn to receive communion. But being at the back of the church, we had to wait for our chance to go forward. I thought to myself that even if a tornado rips through this building, I'm going to get that communion. I went forward and knelt at the rail, took the bread and grape juice, bowed my head and said, if you're real, please come and get me. At that very moment, I once again felt what can only be described as the peace that passes understanding. In the article, which we'll actually come back to at the end of the sermon, she goes on to describe not only her old life in Christ, but her new life with Jesus. Part of what you see very clearly in this article, in this story, what you see in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read in a minute, is that when God calls you out of your old life, he actually calls you into a new life with him. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 9. Now, before I read Acts chapter 9, I'm going to set the context a little bit. In Acts chapter 7, we read the story of this man named Stephen, who's a follower of Jesus, and he's debating the members of the Supreme, the Jewish Supreme Court, called the Sanhedrin, about the truth of Christianity and the resurrection. Stephen accuses them of resisting the Holy Spirit and murdering Jesus, and at this, this uh, group of powerful men lose their temper, temper with him. They drag him outside of Jerusalem, and they stone him, which is where they take rocks, and they pelt him until he dies. And what's interesting is in the story, we're told that uh, these men laid their cloaks at the feet of a young Pharisee named Saul. The question is, would he be appalled or would he be intrigued? Chapter 8, verse 1 goes on to say this, and Saul approved of their killing him. The story actually and honestly reads a little bit like a script of the formation of a young white supremacist being formed. We're told about Saul. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So instead of being repulsed at the violence and the oppression of Christians, it fueled Paul. It energized him. It made him feel powerful. But let's look at what happens in chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus calls Saul or Paul out of his old life and into a new life with him, beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Just call time out for a moment and just ask you to put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. He's on a mission to capture and to kill Christians. When he's struck blind, there's a flash of light, and he falls to the ground. He hears a voice, and when he asks who the voice is, the voice says, I'm Jesus. Right? What would he have thought? What would he have felt? 
it's entirely possible that Paul would have thought that he was losing it, that he was going insane. Let's get back to the story, verse 6. <clears throat> Jesus, this voice goes on to say, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He's probably in shock. He's blind. He's trying to process this experience that he just had. He's trying to make sense of it and what it might mean for him and what it might mean for the life that he has built for himself. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So I love the editorial comment here. And you can just imagine that years after this event, Paul and Ananias sitting around having a cup of coffee, and they're each giving their account of their side of the story, right? Jesus appears to both of them. He coordinates their meeting. He calls each of them to something that's really scary, really dangerous, that's going to really require a lot of courage and bravery on each of their parts. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias isn't quite there yet. He's asking, are you sure, Lord? Are you sure this is what you need me to do? And if you think about it, so often God is calling us into situations where we very appropriately and understandably ask God the same question. Are you you sure that's what you want me to do? You sure you want me to forgive that person who has sinned against me? You sure you want me to reach out to that person who's unlovable? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before all the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him what he must, how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after that, taking some food, he regained his strength. Pretty amazing story here. Pretty amazing that Paul's praying and going, hey, God, what do you want me to do with this? And that God answers Saul slash Paul's prayer through Ananias, who comes and tells him about this new life. What do we see about Saul slash Paul's new life? Well, I think the first thing we see very clearly in this passage of Scripture is that when God calls us into a relationship with him, calls us into this new life, he gives us a new perspective. That was true for Paul, for sure. Look at verses 17 through and 18. Then Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, appeared as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. <clears throat> and so in this simple 19 verses, sight and sight-related words are used 13 different times. And so clearly it's a central theme. John does the same thing in his letter. Prior to being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul saw the world in a very particular way. Jesus was a fraud. His followers were bringing harm to Judaism and to the Jewish state, 
and Christianity and all of its followers needed to be eradicated. That's the way he saw Christianity. Contrast that with, with Paul's new perspective. Not only was Jesus not a fraud, Paul saw that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that God had talked about that was going to come and set his people free. Paul saw that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul, Paul saw that the only way to be forgiven for his sins and our sins and restored in our relationship with God was because of Jesus' perfect life, his death, his resurrection. Paul saw that all of his prior attempts at self-salvation or justification by good works were fruitless. They were empty. In fact, in Philippians 3.8, Paul refers to his good works prior to becoming a believer in an attempt to earn God's favor as scubalon, which means animal dung. Right? So in other words, he said, all that great stuff I did or thought I was doing that was great stuff, it was all poo, pardon my French. You can quote me on that. <clears throat> or, or quote Paul. Paul sees the salvation, that salvation comes not from good works, but from being in Christ by faith. Romans 8.1, which Paul wrote, says this, Therefore, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus. The ways in which Paul sees the world differently after being called by God go on and on and on. God gave him a new perspective. He gives us a new perspective as well. So what happens when God calls us? We see things very differently. Who's in charge? Not me, not us, right? God is in charge. He's the one that determines what is right and wrong, what is good, what is bad, what's true and false. That's, that's what the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about, is who gets to declare what's right and wrong, true and false, good and bad. And when Jesus enters into our lives, we see the world in a new way, and we realize, you're in charge, God, not me. We see sexuality differently. <clears throat> we see that it's not okay to use people, that people are not commodities, that that's someone's daughter, that that's someone's future mother, that that, that man is actually a spiritual being, Right? We see human beings differently in all sorts of different kinds of ways. People have value because they're created in the image of God. That's why they're valuable. Everyone is valuable because they're created in the image of God. Selfish ambition now, self-sacrifice. We see the world in radically different ways when we're invited into a new life with Jesus. Not only do we see Paul given a new perspective, but we also see that when God called Paul, he gave him or became his new master. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So prior to Acts 9, uh, Paul is clearly serving the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, the religious elite. Uh, Maybe the best analogy here would be the hierarchy of the Catholic Church with the Pope, the cardinals, and the bishops. In other words, he's seeking to earn these uh, powerful people's approval He's concerned with pleasing them and honoring them. He's taking his marching orders from them. And there's a sense in which he's also being mastered by the Old Testament law, which he writes about in other areas of Scripture. He's trying desperately to make himself acceptable to God based upon this law-keeping and based upon his religious observances. And the fruit of all of this in Saul slash Paul's life was that he was judgmental, He was racist, and he was a murderer, and it worked itself out in the way that he lived his life. When Jesus called Paul on the Damascus Road, however, he gave him, or he became, a new master for him. 
Paul's very first letter that he wrote to First Thess- the Thessalonian church begins this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. In other words, I have a new master, and his name is Jesus Christ. Again, think about how shocking of a change that was from his old life. Paul's last letter, the one that he wrote at the very end of his life, was 2 Timothy, and it begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? So we see from the very beginning of his new life with Jesus to the very end, as he writes this last letter, that he acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. As fallen human beings, we're always mastered by something. And if you take a moment and think about it, in quiet maybe, you know it's true. You're maybe mastered by your passions, sex, food, entertainment, one more video on YouTube, one more scroll through Instagram, or you're mastered by an ideology, democratic ideology, Republican ideology, identity politics, secularism, or even religion. And when I say religion, I mean anything that teaches that I obey God, therefore I am accepted, right? You may be a slave to psychology. I have to achieve to be loved. I have to be beautiful to have worth. I have to be in control or my life is meaningless, right? Like all of these ways in which we're mastered by these things, and they ultimately enslave us. A good buddy of mine uh, has a daughter who is a senior in high school, and uh, she had a chance to to speak to the entire school about a week ago, and he sent me a video of her speech. Now, what's interesting is um, his daughter, about three and a half years ago now, went through just a horrible time with anorexia. Um, She you know, it's probably 5'8 now and probably weighs 135 pounds. Um, but several years ago, she got all the way down to 90 pounds. She had to be hospitalized. <clears throat> and my buddy, again, who I'm super close with, uh, we talked about it a lot. We prayed about it a lot. We struggled through it. Really, this period in her life lasted about two years. And it was just terrifying, terrifying, as you can imagine, not only for he and his wife, but for the other kids as well. And he said, you know, I felt like I was never talking to my daughter. I was always talking to this thing that sort of was between me and her. But what's interesting is a couple of years ago, she just changed. Something switched. And the purpose of her talk that she gave at her school publicly in front of the entire student body was to say this. She said any number of different things, but she said, she said, I was so consumed with the desire to be pretty. She said, I was so consumed with the desire to be good. And she said, but what ended up happening is this desire for beauty, this desire to be good, this desire to accomplish all of these things ended up being that it wasn't enough for me just to be good, but I had to be better than everyone else. And it just consumed me and it controlled me. And again, she's telling the story. She speaks to this student body. And she said, it wasn't until I embraced the truth that God loved me and accepted me apart from all of that, that I was set free. It's really just this amazing story, this amazing testimony. I'd be happy to ask my buddy if I could send it to you. But that's the point is we're all mastered by something. And whatever it is that we're mastered by, if it's not Jesus, it will enslave us 
and it will destroy us, which is exactly why we need a new master. It's exactly why we need Jesus. Because what Christianity teaches is that where everything else will enslave you, Jesus, when he's your new master, he actually sets you free to be fully human, to flourish, right? To be free. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 5, he says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I don't know how many of you desire to have a new master, one that would set you free, but I'm here to tell you that's what God offers us, right? It's what God offers you. It's what he offered Paul. And then finally, we see that when God called Paul, he not only gave him a new perspective, he not only gave him a new master, but that Jesus gives him a new mission. Look at verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So if you remember Paul's old mission, very clear, was to hunt down Christians, to have them arrested, and eventually to have them put to death or to recant. The purpose of all of this zeal on behalf of Paul was to work his way up the ranks of Jewish leadership in in an attempt to gain power, influence, and authority. In writing to the Galatian church, Paul says, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. His old mission was ultimately a self-centered attempt to justify his existence and to gain power. His new mission, however, was very different. Jesus asked Paul to spread the good news about him throughout the Roman world, and that's exactly what Paul did. He took the message of Jesus to Lebanon, to Syria, to Cyprus, to mainland Greece. Last summer, our family got to stand on Mars Hill where Paul stood and addressed crowds of people telling them about Jesus at the foot of the Acropolis. Paul took the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus, to Asia Minor, to Jordan, to modern-day Turkey, and ultimately all the way to Rome. Listen as he talks about his new mission in his own words. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. In other words, what Paul is saying there is, all I want to do is take the message of Jesus to as many people as possible because it's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's about them. He goes on to say in Philippians 1, for me, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Some of you in this room this morning can very clearly remember your old mission in life before Jesus called you. It may have been something as simple as to have fun at every turn along the way. It may have been a career, right? That may have been your mission is I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get the career that I'm, you know, I think is going to sort of set me up for the rest of life. It may have been that your old mission was to find romance, or maybe it was to find power. Paul's new mission, 
again, was to carry the message of Jesus far and wide. It's what Jesus called him to do, and Paul did it. The question is, what mission is Jesus calling you to? If you remember at the very beginning of the sermon, I read that chunk of an article written by uh, Mary Poplin, <clears throat> this uh, you know, a r- pretty remarkable uh, woman. <clears throat> and in it, um, at the very end of the story, she tells about how after she'd become a Christian, she became interested in social justice and really serving the poor. And so she said, I made up my mind to go spend some time with Mother Teresa. And so she uh, writes this about her time there in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. She says this, coming to Christ changed not only my personal life, but my intellectual life as well. My scholarly work was, had always, has always focused on the best ways to educate the poor. So in 1996, I spent two months in Kolkata with Mother Teresa, tending to sick infants, performing some cleaning tasks, and running supplies to the mother house. One day, as I was sitting on a bench, Mother Teresa herself walked straight up to me. She shook her finger and instructed, God does not call everyone to serve the poor like he calls us, but God does call everyone to a Calcutta. You have to find yours. So for Mary Poplin, her Calcutta was the academic world. She said, all right, that's where I'm called to serve. And so for you, it it doesn't have to be missions. It doesn't have to be young life. It doesn't have to be campus outreach. It doesn't have to be any overt ministry at at all. Your Calcutta may be your sixth grade classroom, Maybe your coworkers. It may be your three children, or four children, or five children. It may be the athletic team on which you find yourself. But what really matters is that you let God tell you what your Calcutta is, that you let Him give you and call you to a new life. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, Father, that you speak to us through Scripture. You speak to us through your Holy Spirit. You speak to us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, you even speak to us in dreams. Father, I pray that you would speak to us. And Father, I pray that we would listen. And Father, I pray that we would submit. I pray that we would allow you to be our new master. I pray that you would allow us uh, to be sent out on whatever mission it is that you have for us, Father. And I pray that you would even enable us to see the world as you see the world. Father, give us a new perspective of, of people who don't know you, of people who do know you, of this world that we live in. Father, I pray that you would call us to a new life. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.